Welcome to Underreported. I'm Nicholas Lemon. One of President Donald Trump's favorite rhetorical motifs is warning that members of a murderous gang from El Salvador called MS-13 intend to cross our southern border in force and wreak violent havoc on American society. It's an inaccurate scenario and also an ironic one. MS-13 is much better understood as the product of an American invasion of, of El Salvador than of an El Salvadoran invasion of the United States. In State of War, William Wheeler, an intrepid and fearless young reporter, tells the real story of MS-13 and more broadly of how El Salvador has descended into violence and corruption. MS-13 and its rival gang, Barrio 18, are stronger, richer, and more influential than ever, and El Salvador is intermittently the most violent country in the world. Through path-breaking original reporting in El Salvador and Los Angeles, Wheeler has pieced together the entire history of the gangs for the first time. He has also produced chilling, unforgettable, up-close portraits of the people he encountered. Gang members, frustrated reformers, crime investigators, and government officials. The story he tells in State of War is the opposite of President Trump's, but it is no less dramatic. It also has the advantage of being true. Bill, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's start just by uh, asking you to talk a little bit about what got you interested in this topic. How did, how did, how did it uh, happen? Uh, yeah, I'd been kind of bopping around the world for, for a number of years from subject to subject, from environmental reporting to um, a little bit of conflict uh, and a good deal of migration. So most recently I've been coming out of uh, you know, reporting on the Libyan uh, migration out of Libya and then also Syria into Europe. And so I'd kind of been following what was happening at the U.S. southern border as an analogous sort of population movement. And um, you know the, the rise of, uh, of this greater percentage of, of people fleeing Central America and sort of outpacing or outstripping the Mexican movement. So it kind of caught my attention there. When you're writing about El Salvadoran gangs, I assume it's not like you call their press secretary and ask for an interview. So how did you penetrate their world? Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, a lot of it was, I was also in Honduras where the gangs are still a little bit more approachable and access is easier. In El Salvador, particularly after this truce, uh, everyone clammed up and it got exceedingly hard to access, uh, you know, active current gang members. Um, they have a strict code of silence, obviously. Um, I worked with a photojournalist, uh, Juan Carlos, who has been on speed for a while and had cultivated relationships with basically homicide detectives who had a few active informants that had just recently left the gangs. Uh, and we also just sort of went out to, uh, you know, sort of the few functioning rehabilitation programs that really exist um, to try to contact older gang members because I wanted to sort of see the sweep of the gang's evolution. And then in the end, I also went out to prisons and uh, kind of went fishing. Uh, and that was where some of my most you know, uh, profitable uh, investments and time and, and just talking to random people really brought, brought some really new and important information. So let's sort of take the story from the top, um, starting with you know, long ago now, uh, wars in El Salvador back, uh, I guess, when Ronald Reagan was president. So let's start there, and we'll just walk through step by step up to today. Yeah. So, um, 
you know, there was increasing inequality across Central America. The whole region was sort of racked by some of the most unequal societies on the planet. And um, academics still debate today at what point civil war became inevitable in El Salvador. Um, but the final straw, so to speak, was the uh, assassination by sort of shadowy right-wing forces of uh, a liberation theologian, uh, Archbishop Oscar Romero, who was sort of a patron saint of El Salvador's poor and was really outspoken about all of these uh, murder and human rights violations that the regime was doing. What year are we in now? 79. Um, so at his funeral, a quarter million people turn out and unknown forces start uh, sniping at the crowd and, and detonating explosives that turned into, into a massacre. Um, in short order, uh, conflict erupted between five uh, guerrilla groups that were sort of joined under an umbrella and the right-wing government. And it set into, um, originally the guerrillas' strategy was to try to end the war in the way that uh, Nicaragua or Cuba had with a, a show of force that would ignite popular s uprising and support from the civilian population. Uh, very much so because they wanted to do this before Ronald Reagan took office because they knew he was likely to, to double down and, and back the right-wing government. Um, that didn't work. And uh, in a sort of very in interesting, we'll skip over most of that history, but um, the conflict and the way that it played out settled into a war of attrition uh, and the U until the U.S. really started to supply uh, a lot of aerial capacity uh, to the Salvadoran government, um, and at which point, um, you know, the sort of nature of the conflict settled into uh, the guerrilla didn't want to challenge a standing army. They, they had s had some successes, but with this U.S. air power, uh, it sort of fractured into these small insurgencies in guerrilla uh, war of attrition that went on for an incredibly long period of time. I mean, the entire war is about 12 years. And so in that process, you had a fifth of the population displaced. Um, you had some of the most egregious human rights abuses of the era um, committed by troops that were advised, trained, and supported by U.S. forces. It was sort of the moral, it was the Iraq or the Vietnam of its era. Um, in that time period, you had uh, about 500,000 Salvadorans came to the U.S., they still, I believe, make up the third largest uh, immigrant population, people of Salvadoran heritage in the U.S., and they settled mostly in Los Angeles. So, so let's just uh, do a detail there, uh, you know, because it's such a contrast to the situation now. So how did they get to the U.S.? They were fleeing the war, basically. Um, how did they get to the U.S., and how did they pick Los Angeles, and, and what happened once they got there? Yeah. I mean, they, there had been some, you know, common in migration movements, people leaving for either either economic reasons or the sort of violent rumblings towards civil war. You get sort of magnet communities. El Salvador was, you know, closer to uh, the West Coast. And in that time, border enforcement was nowhere near what the system that we have today. It was pretty easy to, to get across with a coyote who knew the, knew the route. Uh, most of the border was, was passable. You didn't have anything like a... Um, a well-defined barrier, and uh, so coyotes kind of knew where CBP would be based and, and the best ways to get around them, so it was, it was pretty easy at that time. Some people who are listening might not know what a coyote is mm -hmm. and what CBP is. So. Okay, right. So uh, Customs and Border Patrol, you know, or any of the various uh, immigration and border enforcement 
um, at that time was was very different from the system that we have today. Um, a coyote, you'd usually hire a coyote, would be a guide um, who knew kind of the best routes, who knew, um, you know, generally where where enforcement agents would be and how to how to best get around them. And so people would get across the border and then somehow get from the border to L.A., right? Yeah, yeah. And and it was sort of, you know, they've settled largely in this area, uh, Pico Union mm -hmm. or around MacArthur Park, that um, sort of run down and, and abandoned by the white flight to the suburbs 10 years earlier. So you had these areas that were low-rent, impoverished uh, areas that uh, were predominantly Mexican at that time. Okay, so this Salvadoran population arrives, and how does that get us to gangs being born in Los Angeles? So mostly these were barrios dominated by you know Mexican groups. Um, the Mexicans had founded their own gang, Tiesiocho, uh, Barrio 18, in the 1960s. Um, and when the Salvadorans came, they were outsiders, kind of fighting for the, the bottom rungs of the ladder socially, economically. Um, the fact that, you know, they weren't given anything like a asylum or a refugee status kind of compounded that. And so, you know, some people would say that it was a, a means of protection and that, um, you know, had these other dominant gangs in Los Angeles, like uh, the Bloods and the Crips and the African-American community, like uh, Diaciocho from the, from the Mexican gangs, and the Salvadorans were found sort of being preyed upon and to stand up for themselves, and, and also as a sort of form of cultural identity, they they you know wanted to do their own thing and have their own uh, their own group that they belonged to. Um, at that time, bizarrely enough, uh, what became MS-13 was a group of sort of metalhead stoners um, that weren't very violent. They came from a lot of broken homes. The process of uh, migrating had had usually happened in waves in El Salvador. The father would go on first and sort of get a foothold and then maybe send for the family. So you would kind of have families broken up. You'd have a new step-parent in the picture. Um, and they showed up in this uh, kind of bottom-of-the-food chain environment that was um, a lot of broken families, a lot of pressures. And, um, you know, the what became MS-13 was I talked to one of the, the sort of OGs and he OG said, means original gangster, um, Alex Sanchez, who today is actually a, does a lot of intervention uh -huh. uh, to sort of try to get people out of the gangs. Um, you know, so they were sort of Salvadoran metalheads. They weren't what we think of as uh, certainly not MS-13. Um, Where did they get the name from? So it's a source of debate. Um, no one really knows. There's a lot of conflicting explanations. I think uh, people largely agree that, that a Charlton Heston movie that had been translated and was very popular in, uh, in El Salvador, that that was part of the etymology. That the Mata was, um, you know, sort of a group of your clique, basically, your, your group of friends, but it wasn't anything sinister, really, at that time. So at that moment, it's now sort of the late 80s in, in L.A. Early, mid-80s still. And, and so if you're a member of, of MS-13, what does that entail? What is, do you have a day job and then this is like your social club or is it a full-time occupation? No, it's, I mean, I think it's best thought of as what it's not. So, you know, the city had these gangs that were Chicano, Latino gangs that had, you know, the, the hair kind of slicked back under hairnets 
and uh, a few years later they would you know shave their heads completely and they had this sort of LA Latino gangbanger look. Mother Salvatrucha was didn't look like that at all. They had long hair, they had bell-bottom jeans, they had uh, converse because the the star looks like a pentagram and these were guys who would smoke pot and listen to metal music and maybe go see a show and, and hang out in the mosh pit. They were not anything like the sort of violent or predatory groups. Um, at that time, they did start to end up in juvenile hall, and that was this period of transformation where they came out looking like these Chicano gangsters where they'd cut their hair and they'd get the Nike Cortez and the baggy khakis. And so there was a period where um, you could literally see them appropriating the gang culture that they, uh, that they had found themselves uh, confronted by increasingly violently. I mean, they were... More in the neighborhood or more through incarceration? Um, you know, a little bit of both. I think, um, I think once they started to go through Juvenile Hall and dress like Chicano gangs, then um, they found themselves attacked or treated as such. And, you know, sort of as a show of dominance, they found themselves fighting and, and becoming more... Games. They also learned extortion as well uh, from that period. You know, they kind of came out of juvenile hall with uh, the tools to extort their neighbors. That was an idea that, that came out of that period. Okay, so uh, our story so far is, uh, you know, brutal civil war in El Salvador uh, with the, the, the U.S. strongly backing the right-wing government, causing hundreds of thousands of people to flee many to Los Angeles, and in that culture, MS-13 is born. Mm -hmm. So now let's get them back to El Salvador. How did that happen? Um, so in this period of transformation where they become, so they start looking and acting more like what we think of as a street gang, uh, you know, there, there was a sort of motif that ran through the reporting, which is this idea of the, the machete, where they'd, they'd seen the army use the machete in the Civil War. They all had you know, memories of... of the sort of fear that that had instilled. And in this process of fighting the other gangs, Alex Sanchez recalled the first time he saw somebody pull out a machete, and it scared the hell out of the guys that they were fighting. Salvadors were used to it, but they still remembered that sort of scare tactic that, um, that the Salvadoran forces had used. Period of escalation follows. Uh, they get involved in sort of neighborhood drug sales, um, as all the gangs around them are doing. And then you have basically starting... Uh, Late 89, you had the, the start of sending some of these Salvadorans who didn't have anything like asylum or refugee status back to El Salvador. Who's They're, sending them back, and how are they getting back? Well, so they'd be, on, they'd be basically ejected by immigration, but it, really very small scale in 89. Really picked up after, in, during Bill Clinton's tenure, and a lot of this comes back to 94 and the sort of pivot that Clinton did after... Republicans who had campaigned on very harsh immigration policies and made that a central defining issue of the of the campaign. Clinton had sort of pivoted both on crime and welfare reform and did a similar thing with immigration. And so at this point, you have, um, you know, Alex Sanchez and these guys would get picked up, and if they had an irregular immigration status, they the judge would usually just release them and start the process to get a green card. Now you've got even guys who have green cards. Uh, getting swooped up and sent back by the plane load. And so starting in 96 mostly, uh, but throughout Clinton's whole administration, you had plane loads of Salvadoran gangsters showing up 
and there was no, there wasn't like a database, there was no real sharing of information between U.S. and Salvadoran authorities. So particularly after 92, Civil War winds down, and uh, they really ramp up, start ramping up this deportation machinery. Um, and these guys just show up by the plane load, and the Salvadoran government doesn't know they're coming, doesn't know who they are, and they start to establish the same sort of connections that they had made in California prisons, and they find sort of as a means of survival that uh, they don't really belong in the society that they've returned to, but all of the sort of orphans of this war start flocking to their banner, and pretty soon these guys have their neighborhood cliques and, and like little local armies that they're running as a sort of survival mechanism. Do you know how many uh, Salvadorans from LA and elsewhere got deported back to El Salvador during yeah, this period? Yeah, the numbers are really tricky. I've, I've got them. Um, you know, it's something like there were thirty, roughly 30,000 Central Americans with a criminal record deported in the first, I think it was the first three to five years. After that, you have something like 100,000 over the next 10 years. I'm, I'm a little bit off on the numbers. I can but get a, a lot of bit. people. A lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people. Uh, okay, so so now, um, if not, well, let's just to close the loop. So is MS-13 still functioning in L.A. during all this time? They are, but they're, they're caught up in this, you know, anti-immigrant crackdown that's going on. Um, and it's sort of unclear whether that was... In it was also in response to their success, basically, as they started to become using this sort of shock and awe campaign that they're the sort of extreme hyperviolence. Um, so, so let's drill down on that a little. So, in the original days in LA, MS 13 is one of a whole bunch of gangs in a rich gang landscape in Los Angeles, and it's by no means the scariest one. Um, but what does MS-13 look like in its El Salvador incarnation in the 90s? Yeah. Somebody said this really, really distinctly. Um, this guy who went by the name Angel of Death, who I found in a Salvadoran prison, who had been, you know, sort of aspiring to be this OG that I'd mentioned. He said that, um, so really it's founded in L.A. There's this sort of population transfer to the East Coast, where MS starts to establish itself in New York, D.C., Virginia areas. He gets arrested and deported for, for, I think he had a kilo of coke on him. And, you know, when he got to El Salvador, he learned very quickly that it had become a very different beast. You know, that these this first sort of generation of kids that were 10 or 11 years old who were flocking to the banner of, of this really cool American gang um, pretty quickly became brought a new level of brutality um, to the game where they really outgrew their sort of first American incarnation. So when by the time he arrived, I think in 98, he um, didn't, want anything to, didn't want to have anything to do with the gang. And the gang members were really suspicious, you know, of him at that time and, and sort of almost saw their American progenitors as outdated, you know, almost like an OK Boomer sort of phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Um, so what did MS-13 kind of do for a living in these years in, in, in El Salvador? How did, how did it organize itself and, and finance itself? You know, it was everyone sort of were small-scale hustlers, and they would sort of throw 10 or 20 bucks into the group coffers at the end of the week. 
but it was very localized. Um, kind of the only guys they knew were each other. You didn't know anybody who lived in another neighborhood. Um, at the same time, their rivals from L.A. were getting deported, and so territory started to get very... Um, it was a little bit fluid at first, but it started to ossify. You know, you started to see these gangs controlling distinct neighborhoods. But it, again, it was very local, and it was very sort of freelance, uh, whatever they did to make money. Some of them were involved in little bands of car robbery or robbing uh, sort of check cashing centers. Um, but it wasn't, they hadn't really figured out extortion until the sort of next wave of the, of the gang's evolution, which is, which is Monodura. So let's um, take a break there and end part one of this interview, and we'll talk about that in part two. So this brings us to the end of part one of our discussion with William Wheeler, author of State of War, MS-13, and El Salvador's World of Violence. Part two will be right here in the feed soon. You'll find links to this and all of our books, as well as our blog, events, and more at globalreports.columbia.edu. That's globalreports.columbia.edu. I'm Nick Lemon. Thanks for listening.